We are under attack. Behind the bright lights of the global stage, there lies a dark underworld most people know nothing about. People need to care what's happening inside of Putin's Russia because it's affecting all of us. Hey, everybody. I'm Mo. And this is Kremlin File. Hey, Olga. Hi. Today's episode is a deep dive into the Russian intelligence services. What intelligence services exist inside of Russia and who has the responsibility, you know, for what operations? And there have been attacks during, right, even during the summer. Yeah. Right. We've had attacks. Yeah. Then I mean, at one point they, you know, they were probing our nuclear systems. There was a foiled attack of uh, trying to poison the water supply twice this year. An investigation underway after a hacker tried to poison a Tampa Bay area water system. This is obviously a significant and potentially dangerous increase. Uh, sodium hydroxide, also known as lye, is the main ingredient in liquid drain cleaners. Also intelligence operations going on. We remember the headlines with Navalny being poisoned with Novichok in uh, Russia. In August 2020, a Russian political leader and opponent of Vladimir Putin, Alexei Navalny, was hospitalized after being exposed to the nerve agent Novichok. The attempt on his life was allegedly carried out by Russian federal security service agents on behalf of the Kremlin. The assassination attempt and Navalny's subsequent jailing prompted condemnation from political leaders around the world. And this is all part, right? We found what we learned from, let's say, Heather and from Jakob of all of the capture that goes on. And these are the actual services that carry out, right? So basically, this episode will walk us through all the intelligence agencies and which agencies um, in the Kremlin in Russia are responsible responsible for attacks. And trying to explain how each of these operations, right, how they actually operate. Yes. And uh, who decides which agencies are to be used? Because, for instance, you know, we see and always hear about Russian mercenaries operating in Libya and Syria Mm -hmm. and Central Africa. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that, for instance, is the GRU, which is a a military um, intelligence agency who's responsible for those attacks. But at the same time, they've also been responsible for cyber attacks against U.S. homelands. And we couldn't have better guests to talk to us all about it. Yeah, we have Mark Krutoff and Mike Echo, both from Radio Free Europe, joining yeah. us. And they're, I mean, they're amazing. And they've done so much deep dives into Russian intelligence services and their operations across the globe. So without any further ado, let's welcome Mark and Mike. Hi, Mark. Hi, Mike. Welcome, welcome. We started with this topic of Russian intelligence services with Yuri Felchinsky and how the Russian intelligence services had captured the state. He gave us a wonderful, wonderful overview of the history, okay, of all this. But we also know that today these services are really at the heart of the war against the West. Can you give us a general overview of the FSB, the SVR, and the GRU, Mark? So both SVR and GRU mainly act abroad. That's the main thing. While uh, Federal Security Service, FSB, is usually assigned uh, for internal operations. And when FSB is involved in some operation outside Russia, it happens really rare, if at all. Experts I spoke to tend to think that GRU in this field is more about rapid and noticeable operations like DNC hacking, Mm. while SVR works much more quietly and often Mm. conduct long-term assignments. 
most prominent case which allegedly involves SVR is, as you may know, SolarWinds attack. A new warning tonight about the scope of a massive cyber attack. Uh, already believed to be the largest cyber attack on our government. America under virtual invasion. A so-called supply chain attack against SolarWinds, a company that specialized in network tools, gave hackers access to potentially thousands of targets. The truth is this. The Trump administration failed to prioritize cybersecurity. They suspect the breach went undetected for something like eight months. U.S. security officials are just beginning to discover how widespread the intrusion is, acknowledging that it targeted at least the Treasury, Commerce, State, and Homeland Security departments and may have hit the Pentagon. There's always, almost always, a competition for resources, a competition for prestige, mm. like a team of rivals type of system uh, among the agencies. I can think of a half dozen examples where SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service, and the GRU, Military Intelligence, mm -hmm. have been working towards the same goal, but you know, competing and, and unbeknownst to uh, to one another. So sometimes mm. it's not it's not this you know unified, smooth operating oiled right. machine. It's it's, it's, right. It gets messy uh, at times, but that doesn't necessarily yeah. undermine the effectiveness of the entities and how they operate. Can you tell us about that? What else are they involved in? I can add the GRU is actually mm -hmm. a part of the larger Russian military machine. So it's not only about intelligence operations, it's uh, about military presence. If you take the um, Wagner's private military company, so-called private, it started all in Ukraine in 2014 as a GRU initiative. And they were trained initially in the Krasnodar region on the same uh, base where GRU trained their guys. So, and after that, they sent them to Ukraine, later to Syria, and now, you know, all Middle East and Africa. So it's not about only intelligence operations. Sometimes it's just about war. Right. You know, it's also an evolution. <laughs> I mean, this is not a, uh, something set in stone in doctrine and policy operation right. that is then unchanging. I mean, as as we all know, and I'm sure many of the listeners are aware of, I mean, the, the, the Russian intelligence apparatus has evolved many times over the past decade and certainly, yeah. you know, over the past 50 years. I mean, the KGB was not a, a static organization that just was set in stone for all times. And so the GRU, particularly after the 2008 Georgian War, which uh, highlighted some major shortcomings and doctrine problems and technology issues with Russian military, there was a whole scale uh, reformation of, of large parts of the Russian armed services. The mm -hmm. GRU was, uh, was also the focus of serious re reforms at that time. So it's important to understand that these missions, you know, evolve over time and the focus of the agencies evolve all the, over time. Okay. So they adapt perhaps maybe in different yeah, situations. No, no Is question. that the idea? No question. Yeah. We hear a lot, you know, on this unit 29155. That's the unit who are running all the foreign assassinations and other destabilizing activities, right? Unit 29155 is part of Russia's main intelligence directorate, or otherwise known as the GRU. What kind of operations do they run? So actually, there is not much public information about this unit, but in the course of several of our investigations, we found some interesting things about this unit. 
Didn't you guys also investigate and find out that GRU Unit 29155 were behind the poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter in England? When double agent Sergei Skripal was arrested, it was done publicly on the streets of Russia in full view of the TV cameras. When he collapsed under the influence of an unknown substance 14 years later, it happened out of the spotlight in the back streets of a quiet English cathedral city. Two agents from Unit 29155 of the GRU made a mistake. In 2018, two agents attempted to assassinate former Russian spy Sergei Skripal. Skripal recovered after being hospitalized, and whilst at the hospital, they discovered that the nerve agent Skripal was poisoned by was Novichok. Even before Skripal's poisoning, we know that Russian Defense Ministry ordered uh, in 2012 and mm -hmm. um, awarded this uh, unit with some bonuses for, uh, for quote here, special achievements during the course of service. Mm. There could be many more clandestine operations we don't know about. Because GRU Unit 29155 doesn't only operate on the ground, they're also responsible for cybercrime. Right. 29155 has been alleged to be involved in uh, a hacking operation of the Organization hmm. for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons and, mm -hmm. and the World Anti-Doping Agency, which... At The Hague, right? Yes, if I'm not mistaken. You are not mistaken, of course, but that's not what I actually call cyber operations because okay. they just arrived on the place. Physically, they tried to connect to Wi-Fi. They tried to steal some data. Uh, yes, maybe it's called cyber crimes. I'm, I'm not yes. sure, but uh, from my point of view, it's quite another thing than sitting uh, in Moscow yeah. and uh, trying to send some phishing letters and so on. So yes. physical operations yes. where officers present at their place. Yes, I agree with you that it's uh, something different than writing code and sending hoax spear uh, phishing emails to the Democratic National Committee versus yeah. parking yeah. your car outside yeah. the... Uh, OPCW headquarters and trying to piggyback their signal and yeah. get into their Wi-Fi Yeah, the guy was network. in the car, right? He was just in the car. In the car and in the hotel room. Yeah. yeah. They rented the hotel room uh, just near the building. Oh, wow. Okay. I have a question about the chemical weapons. These chemical weapons have been banned by the United Nations and they're using it, right? Because they're this is chemical warfare. How is Russia masking its chemical weapons research and development? Novichok mm -hmm. is a legacy of the Soviet chemical weapons program, which was serious and a major kind of sprawling endeavor, of course, secret from the world during the Cold War. And uh, yes, the United States had a substantial chemical weapons and biological weapons program as well. But uh, as best as we as we can tell, the Novichok concept, which basically was that you have two different chemicals that taken on their own are not banned under international treaty or not even listed in, in certain you know chemical uh, classification mm. tables, but when combined in a certain way under certain circumstances, create this incredibly powerful nerve agent. And and again, if the account of defectors mm. is to be is to be believed, and I haven't seen anything to the contrary, these type of weapons were developed specifically in order to circumvent international treaties like the Chemical Weapons okay. uh, Convention and other treaties. So the fact that 
you know, the infrastructure not only existed as of, you know, 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, but the infrastructure continued to exist. Like early 90s till late 90s. For example, that they, they used Novichok to kill some Russian banker. It's the first example of using Novichok in the Soviet. And we know that this poison, the Novichok, which was used, uh, it was from those old uh, Soviet stocks. Hmm. I think that later, maybe after year 2000, they may have restarted and intensified the research works and uh, set up the, all these, those labs, institutes, etc. I mean, the scientific uh, networks, the institutes, yeah. you know, the research, the studies. The, yeah, it was always there. That never went away. Yeah. It's always been there to some degree. Now, now I'm, not, I'm not asserting that there's been an active chemical weapons program since 1991, since the Soviet collapse. However, the fact that Novichok has now entered the, the world consciousness and the fact that it's been identified, analyzed, you know, by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Yeah. Those are some smart people there. They're not, you know, just willy-nilly open source bloggers. I mean, these guys know what they're talking about. During the Soviet times, there were a lot of closed off towns which housed institutes. And I mean, there was never even a clear picture of how extensive their biological and chemical development program was. And people who do studies, scientists who do specific studies related to these chemical weapons, that suggests that this is just the tip of the iceberg. It's like biological weapons. Yeah, for biological weapons, for example. That's actually quite scary. Why is it that Russian intelligence services have taken to poisoning people overseas? I mean, there are so many easy ways to murder people. You can shoot them. There are plenty of ways, but for some reason with certain figures, they prefer to use poison to murder them. Is there a reason for that? The reason is simple. is uh, It's to hide the traces because when you poison someone with Novichok, it's very, very hard to find it, uh, to review it. For example, the, poison, the, the fact that Skripals were poisoned with Novichok were revealed nearly by a coincidence that the, mm. the, the, the main UK lab, military lab, was just a few miles away. Otherwise, uh, one or two days, everything disappears from the body and you will, mm. and nobody will ever know that it was a murder. Okay. okay. I'll say to that extent, I want to highlight uh, one of the other investigations that we've looked at, and this is the poisoning of, of a gentleman by the name of Vladimir Karamoza, who appears to have been poisoned not once, but twice while in Russia, two separate occasions, he survived both those attempts, was hmm. severely debilitated and uh, he was comatose in, uh, in both of those cases. And what's interesting about Karamurza's case Again, this happened in 2017 and 2019, if I'm not mistaken, and they both these cases both occurred in in Russia. What's interesting is that Karamozai and his his allies, his relatives, managed to smuggle out of the country blood samples, human tissue, and and, and similar stuff to be analyzed wow. by uh, in the United States by the FBI and by some of the United States government's most sophisticated research labs. 
like Lawrence Livermore and the chemical weapons lab at Fort Detrick. So Karmazat's case is interesting because this is the first time where we have like a sophisticated foreign scientific network that is trying to look at the chemistry that was used to target him. And as our reporting has shown, based largely on uh, documents that were released under the Freedom of Information Act, you know, the U.S. government has struggled to try and figure out exactly what it was that was targeting Karmurza, and they looked at at one point whether polonium was used. Polonium-210, of course, was the chemical that was used, mm. the radioactive substance that was used in the killing of Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2005. They looked at whether dioxin had been used. Dioxin, of course, was utilized in the poisoning of mm. Ukrainian presidential candidate Viktor Yushchenko in 2004. Uh, he survived that case. Mm-hmm. So, again, the point of all this is that there... The poisonings, the, the poisonings are being utilized as a tool by certain intelligence agencies. And as Mark said, uh, they're hard, exceedingly hard to identify and to pinpoint. And the efforts of the U.S. government to pinpoint Kara Morza's poisoning underscore that difficulty. I'll also add this. They're also kind of a, a shocking type of thing, you know, poisonings, you know, yeah. it's it. Yeah. it the uh, the Chechen gentleman who was uh, murdered in Berlin in 2009, uh, Zelim Khanashvili, I mean, he was gunned down and and, uh, and not to disrespect his death at all, but that was kind of, that was shocking. But at least to my mind, being targeted with this, with polonium, this radioactive substance or dioxin or uh, Novichok, that's a, of a scale of sophistication that, that I think is a, it's a different level altogether. The example with Karamorzai is very good because even I myself was not sure that he was poisoned uh, until a journalist found that this FSB poisoning squad was following him. Because based on his medical record, you cannot uh, you cannot find any hard hard evidence. Even I myself uh, was not sure that he was poisoned. There are so many methods without causing an international incident, but it feels like Russian intelligence services use poison as a means of sending a message. And it's usually reserved to either high-level opposition figures or Russian intelligence officers, well, former Russian intelligence officers, who the Kremlin sees as traitors who have come over to the West. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PolicyGenius.com. So people are always coming to us to ask for the best tips on uh, research. So if you're interested in life insurance, we have the best tip for you. You can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes Advisor. Wow. It's an award-winning policy option. Yes, it's a wonderful marketplace that makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers in minutes, and they add no extra fees. And you know you can save 1300 or more per year, Olga on life insurance by using the Policy Genius to compare policies. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. 
We have seen so many Russian diplomats, attaches, advisors uh, recently expelled in Austria, Italy, Czech Republic. You know, every other day it feels like there's some kind of diplomat row and, and expulsions happening. Today, I've approved several steps, including expulsion of several Russian officials as a consequence of their actions. I've also signed an executive order authorizing new measures, including sanctions to address specific harmful actions that Russia has taken against U.S. interests. NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg said he wanted to send Russia a message. And on Tuesday, the alliance expelled seven diplomats and denied accreditation to three more. Why are we seeing such an increase, you know, with the Russian diplomats and their networks being exposed in Europe? You know, I don't necessarily think that this is anything new necessarily. I mean, you know... Embassies, consulates being utilized by countries to conduct intelligence operations. I mean, everyone does it. The fact that this is being exposed and diplomats are being kicked out to the degree that they have been, to a degree that we haven't seen in years, I would say that that is a reflection of two things. One, that, I mean, where Russia is concerned, Russian intelligence operations abroad have increased their tempo of operations, of all operations, over the past 15 to 20 years. Um, that's, I think, a, a, a pretty undisputed fact. And now, all of a sudden, people are, are looking back on past cases. A great example is the 2014 uh, Czech ammo depot explosion and realizing, you know, holy crap, this stuff was going on under our noses and we didn't realize it. Shockwaves from a devastating explosion at this Czech ammunition depot in 2014 are still reverberating. The 2014 blast in Vrbjetice set off 50 metric tons of ammunition, killing two people. Hundreds of people were evacuated. Citing a new intelligence report, Czech authorities now allege that Russian agents caused the deadly blast and have expelled 18 Russian diplomats. The Russian diplomatic presence in the Czech Republic was huge. It's one of the, one of the biggest in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, maybe in all of Europe. And for years, people were, were wondering, why is there such a, a, a big Russian uh, diplomatic presence, you know, in a country that is fairly small. And when the time came for uh, the revelations about the, the 2014 arms depot explosion that's been tied to the GRU unit 29155 came out. And so expelling intelligence officers operating under diplomatic cover is uh, a pretty easy way to minimize, to eliminate uh, an intelligence operation. The interesting thing will be <laughs> to see is how uh, some of the most capable uh, units in the GRU and the SVR uh, 29155 mm -hmm. or, or, or the others, how they respond and adapt to this changing, changing uh, environment, because clearly they're not going to be doing the same things that they were doing five years ago again because you know, the CIA and MI5 are onto them. So yeah, how are they going to adapt? In fact, that was going to be one of my questions as well. We Should don't know I, yet. If we, we see Novichok well, we'll used see, again, I, guess, I know right? the, the, the Novichok poisoning of Navalny yeah. is kind of interesting because of course Novichok was on everyone's mind with the with the Skripal poisoning in 2018, and then the fact that it turned up again uh, within Russia against. Navalny and then was identified 
for a second time, that kind of, that's sort of surprising, at least to my mind. I, I don't think we'll see Novichok used anytime soon because it's just too damn obvious now. So, so I should say that in Czech Republic, in Verbet, it's a case, for example, we know exactly what happened. We know that uh, Russia tried to blow up this depot to prevent uh, supplying Ukraine with, uh, with the yes, ammo yes. it badly well, of needed. Of course, yes. And uh, for example, when we speak about operations in Bulgaria and Italy, if you remember, recent uh, last year, uh, which resulted in expelling diplomats too. Italy has expelled two Russian diplomats involved in suspected espionage. Italian police said earlier that they had arrested an Italian Navy captain and a Russian diplomat on suspicion of spying after the two were caught swapping documents for money. Asna News Agency reports that NATO documents were among the files the Navy captain passed to the Russian official. The incident was the latest in a series of spying accusations in recent months against Russians in European countries. When we see details, we wonder why, uh, what kind of information could they have gathered there? Because uh, they were contacting quite low position persons. Like in Italy, it was some kind of naval officer, not the highest ranked person yeah. in Bulgaria too. So why, why do they need it? Uh, what kind of NATO secrets they could get from the naval officer? Uh, but the fact is, maybe this is only a theory. Not the information itself is their goal. Their yeah, so goal is to the goal is to show the the European NATO partners that um, <laughs> that they have these vulnerabilities uh, to see the distrust between them. So, for example, mm. even it's also speculation. Even all these uh, failures may have been actually planned because when, for example, Italy or I don't know France or Germany sees that there are some GRU guys successfully planted into Italian military structures or Bulgarian military structures or intelligence structures, they just stop to share information. So maybe they don't really gather some information, sensible information, but just want to see the, the distrust. Interesting. It's quite effective way. Yeah, in fact, the hack and leak operations that we've seen, for example, in Europe, in the US, we've seen, for example, the hacking of the emails. And then in some cases, right, leaks, not in all cases. Who is principally behind these kind of operations? Would Putin be, for example, personally involved in ordering this kind of thing? Open source reporting, uh, including some of the indictments and related court documents filed in the United States by the Justice Department have pointed to, uh, been, it's a goldmine of information, allegations, of course, but pretty solid information about the units uh, and their, their targets and the individuals involved. And, you know, as a pro tip to other researchers out there, I mean, indictments are not just sort of a statement of criminal charges. There's all sorts of tidbits and breadcrumbs and threads to look into in indictments that allow reporters or researchers to go further and do their own research. GRU Unit 74455 is a cyber unit, quote unquote, that has been allegedly involved in the dissemination of stolen documents in the 2016 presidential election. They've also been linked to various cyber attacks, including the not Pietra malware attack in 2017. Again, it's one thing to have intelligence gathering where you're going into a, an adversary system 
system and you're just pulling emails, you're pulling technical documents, you're pulling classified information about your adversaries' weapons. It's another thing to then take that information and then ship it out, send it out and, and distribute it through proxy organizations in order to discredit, to muddy the water, to, to shift public opinion, particularly in a democratic political election. So, you know, there have been allegations for years in the United States that the DNC operation in 2016 was authorized at the highest levels of not just the intelligence community in, in Moscow, but the Kremlin. Wow. And that Putin may have himself, if not been aware of it, may have even approved it. Now, I, I can't speak to the veracity of that, but my own knowledge about Kremlinology over many years of reporting and watching in the Kremlin is that's wholly plausible, that, that an operation of that magnitude and that importance would have been authorized at the very top level uh, of the Kremlin. I actually agree because uh, DNC hack operation, uh, actually the race was that tight that maybe uh, leaking, these, uh, leaking these emails, they caused uh, Hillary Clinton a victory. Have you seen the recent leak, alleged leak from Security Council, this document? Uh, I'm, not, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm not quite sure that it's uh, an authentic document, actually. Opposite to that, yeah. I tend to think that it's not, huh. uh, but uh, the DNC hack had specific result because the race was tight and maybe probably it caused Hillary victory. So such a things could really need the uh, highest authorization. So touching on that, because before every election in Europe and United States, we have seen leaks come out. Have you seen evidence of them altering the content? Because there was a famous RT story Russia Today, their media outlet that was pushing propaganda that U.S. was supporting ISIS in Syria. And they released a video clip of U.S. forces escorting ISIS members. And it ended up being a clip from the video game Call of Duty. If you remember the uh, Macron leaks in France, yes. with the same guys yep. uh, who tried to hack OPCW, OPCW and uh, they also hacked uh, Macron's emails and uh, they published some emails. Some of them were altered or faked, so they mix it all together. And it's hard to understand where it is the real email, where is the fake email. So that's what they intended to do, to mud the water. And now we're seeing it ahead of German elections with the Green Party. They've been under a cyber and hacking attack since the spring before upcoming elections in September. Mark, you, you referenced the, uh, I think you were talking about the big Guardian report in the Security Council. That was a really yeah. interesting case because I was very skeptical at the outset as well. Yeah, can I ask Mark, why why do you think it's not authentic, though? Several things. Language, the timing of its appearance. I don't think such kind of documents okay. uh, would be circulating and would be printed out. And <laughs> Because everything which is, uh, which is there, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily should be printed right. out and uh, handed up to <laughs> council security members. Yeah. My feeling is that documents are authentic. I just don't think they were created in January 2016. But honestly, I agree with Mark. Absolutely. I personally think that maybe they were tipped off. But again, this is pure speculation that the Kremlin was tipped off, that Trump is going to be indicted. And basically, they're just burying him to move on to their next 
puppets. These Guardian documents, I don't remember who was the source for them, uh, but if you look at them, they yeah. just describe very in detail what happened in the last few years. So it looks like somebody just described mm-hmm. uh, everything that happened. And look at the document. They zero in specifically on Trump, not the bigger problems of other people and agencies and our government who are compromised and helping push a pro-Kremlin agenda, but specifically on Trump. And they don't even zero in on his financial relationships with the Kremlin over the past 40 years. They kind of narrowly touch on just the past few years. It feels like they want to move the direction away from the bigger picture and zero in on Trump alone and even a narrow category or narrow set of events around Trump. And they probably created the document a few months ago and said, oh, let's have fun. For me, the red flag was the mentioning of some blackmail which Kremlin allegedly has on Trump. <laughs> when I see Steele's dossier, so this is a red flag for me. <laughs> You know what's funny, Mark, that when I saw I paid attention to the email and they were alluding basically to the sex tapes. But Trump has been in business with Russia going back to Soviet days. I mean, this is a 40 plus year relationship where they've been helping move Kremlin linked money to U.S. And the fact they don't want to touch the financial stuff. I mean, they collected compromise on Trump decades ago. He had every single high level Russian intelligence officer figure and mafia figure living in Trump Tower at one point or another, but they specifically pushed it to the sex tape because they feel like, oh, sex, you know, sells. That'll grab everyone's attention. And of course, the Kremlin loves to distract. So this almost feels like a very similar operation where, again, they're specifically going to Trump and sex and avoiding the bigger relationship, the financial relationship for the past four decades with the uh, Kremlin going back to the 80s. Basically, the way I look at it, and I think Olga looks at it, we all look at it, is that they've taken our democratic values of freedom of speech and open debate, and basically they've weaponized them. So I saw this playing out, and I think Mark and Mike, you've also written about this, those protests around the anti-maskers, also the anti-vaxxers, there's also the COVID disinformation uh, stories that were sent out. Germany, for example, we said it before, was a focus since about March 2020, probably even before that. So in your investigations, what have you discovered about particular AIM? Which Russian intelligence agencies or units are behind a lot of this? You know, uh, again, disinformation campaigns are nothing new. This has been going on for decades, specifically with Soviet intelligence agencies. There are all sorts of examples throughout the Cold War history and even before the, the Cold War of uh, weird stories being laundered and circulated through media outlets in one part of the world or another and then capturing the imagination of the public imagination in the West. The origins of AIDS in the 1980s is a, is a great example. So, you know, disinformation campaigns are nothing new. I would say, you know, what is new, of course, is the media environment that we live in today 
day, social media, where uh, unfiltered, unchallenged, unvetted information can just land with a thud and then, you know, circulate like wildfire. So that's obviously a different, a major difference compared with, you know, the mid-1980s when this AIDS conspiracy was circulating. I'll say also this, you know, I have a problem with people saying, you know, this is undermining democracy. I mean, yeah, it's, but it's exacerbating problems with democracy and that are there in the first place. And you often hear this discourse in, in Washington, I hear it, that Fiona Hill, among others, said this during her impeachment testimony mm. uh, before Congress during Trump's first impeachment. She talked about how, you know, the United States needs to get its act, <laughs> its house in order so that it's not as susceptible to these disinformation campaigns that then exacerbate and amplify partisan divisions in the country. So, you know, the disinformation campaigns that have been used in recent years, they're not the cause of the problem, but they're amplifying the existing problems in the United States in particular. The main thing, when which I warn everybody against when I, we speak about these disinformation campaigns, especially in the United States, I'm not, I don't know that much about Europe, but the main thing I'm warning everybody against is not to overestimate its influence, because uh, it's very easy to say that Russian troll factory by posting like uh, 1,000 uh, Facebook posts in right groups, in left-wing groups, caused some disturbance. Mm -hmm. But look, <laughs> the problem exists by itself. It's uh, not the Russia which uh, caused this problem. Yes, Russia tries to amplify, to play on this ground and to play on these differences, to play, to plan this disturbance. But also you should not overestimate the influence of these campaigns. Well, how about, how about the anti-maskers, the Quirkaden movements that we see in Germany, for example? Is that not an effect? Is that not something that is concrete and affecting people's lives? This is quite a different story. In, in the United States, uh, Russian trolls try to propel a different agenda on the both sides. Yeah, And Germany, I don't know, I think in Germany they're directly founding all these anti-vaxxers movements. Um, this is quite another story because uh, in Germany the government itself is quite strong and uh, you don't need to to invest some money or some efforts into other camp. It's enough to finance some uh, radical rights, people, anti-maskers and so on. I think uh, upcoming elections will also show. Uh, but uh, as for United States, I would not uh, overestimate the influence. You've mentioned the disinformation and you've gone a lot into Prigozhin, which of course is Putin's chef, who um, is known for running the troll factories from the Internet uh, Research Institute that was indicted in Mueller's investigation with their disinformation operation during elections. Also, in recent years, we've seen that every time there are protesters rising up against pro-Putin-friendly dictators, Prigozhin sends his mercenaries to help prop up these dictators. And we also see Russian flights coming in and out, for instance, in Venezuela, Cuba. Is the GRU responsible for these 
operations and how closely is Prigozhin and his, his mercenaries working with the GRU? As for Cuba and Venezuela, uh, it's Russian military. It's just Russian military and it's uh, the same uh, so-called private uh, Wagner private military company. And as for Belarus, uh, it's uh, because I think Kremlin uh, sees Belarus as its internal territory. So uh, those guys that were sent last year to Belarus uh, during the protests, it was mainly uh, Russian police, special police units and uh, uh, federal security service guys, not GRU. But uh, when we speak about uh, Venezuela or Cuba, of course, it's uh, just Russian military, which is GRU. And what about Syria? The same? Syria, we have official Russian military presence, which is not hided. And we have those mercenaries, which have been trained uh, alongside with uh, special military units officially. Uh, so they have uh, they are not official, but they train together on the same base. Uh, they, If they die, nobody knows about it. Only their relatives receive some money. So they, everything is uh, everything is set up there like an uh, ordinary private military company, but uh, it's not official the, because in Russian, private military companies are banned officially. There are some talks about making them legal, right. um, uh, especially the last years when the serious situation mm. escalated and so on, uh, but it didn't happen yet. I think in any discussions about uh, private military companies like Wagner, and we should say that Wagner is just one, it's the best known one, but it is by far not the only one. And there are other PMC, private military companies, that are doing uh, just as aggressive on-the-ground operations in places around the world. Private military companies in Russia, it's the latest iteration or evolution of the use of proxy forces by not only Russian uh, military, but also by Russian intelligence agencies in general. Use of proxy forces has gone on for, I mean, it was common in, in the Cold War and it was common in the Chechen Wars, more specifically in the second Chechen War in the 2000s, where proxy units were enlisted, Chechen forces were enlisted and, and trained as in many cases by the GRU, to be the vanguard of the fighting force on the ground there. So the GRU has extensive experience in cultivating, training, command, and control over these kind of proxy units. To my mind, the private military industry in Russia is kind of just an outgrowth of a formalization of this long-standing tradition. And the fact that there's big money involved is what makes this latest evolution in, in the use of proxy forces so much more interesting to me. So a lot of a lot of interests are enmeshed right together. On the other hand, uh, those uh, PMCs are so popular, especially Wagner PMC, uh, because uh, ordinary Russian men of his 30s or 40s have actually nowhere to go to make that much money for living, any money for living. If you live in some rural uh, small town in Russia, you have okay. no choice. You can uh, you can make sure. a few hundreds of dollars working in some taxi or I don't know. And you can uh, really build a house for your family and uh, have a decent living if you bet your life on it right. and go to and go fighting to Syria. So people uh, are poor and they don't have a lot of choices how to make their life decent. That's why all these uh, so-called private military companies like Wagner, they always have a fresh stream of new people. Earlier this year, the Kremlin installed Sergei Korolev as the deputy director of FSB. And an independent Russia 
media outlet iStories, who since then has been deemed a foreign agent, did an excellent investigation showing that his connection with Russian mafia figures. Is there a bigger relationship with Russian intelligence agencies and Russian organized crime? Do they operate in a way that gives Russian intelligence agencies and the Kremlin plausible deniability? Yes. And the story, again, for those uh, listeners who aren't familiar with it, basically asserted that the first deputy director of the Federal Security Service, the FSB, which is the main domestic security agency, had several personal connections to top leaders in Russia's criminal underground. Really kind of stunning bit of, uh, of reporting. And I haven't seen it corroborated, but I haven't seen it. No one has, has, uh, has decisively debunked it. But more importantly, to your point, Olga, what do we know about the overlap between Russian organized crime and official security structures? This example that was in the, the, the American media, certainly over the past several years. And that involves the case of Maria Butina, the uh, Russian mm-hmm. gun rights activist who ended up in the United States yeah. and befriended a whole host of uh, political activists, primarily Republicans, including several who were uh, deeply involved in the National Rifle Association. And Butina ultimately was arrested, charged with being an unregistered foreign agent. She pleaded guilty, served uh, well something like 12 months in jail, and then was deported back to Russia. Now she's running for election in Russia. I'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, actually, that could be a whole series on how Russian organized crime, the Kremlin, oligarchs, and Russian intelligence all intertwine. Mike, Mark, thank you so much for coming on. And I mean, these are real spy stories that are happening to us in real life. And everybody loves spy stories, but too bad that they're really causing a lot of damage for us. And it's not a movie, it's real life. And we are so grateful to dedicated journalists like the two of you for continuing to bring us this vital reporting. Hey, everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com and find our links to our socials in the show notes. This is season one, Kremlin File, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Amara. This is a Bunker Crew Media production with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben, Brett, and Jordy Micellis of Midas Media with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound engineering by Mike Greenberg. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. Coffee! <laughs>